0: Welcome to Who Cares Wins with me, Lily Cole.
1: We do have a universal language, and those of us who are working in it have a responsibility thus. Mm-hmm.
2: There's a very dangerous situation in media ownership at the moment. So, in a sense, in the days when you owned a newspaper to make lots of money. That was a kind of sort of clean motive, if you like. But now you've got a situation where nobody really owns a newspaper to make money. So then you have to ask, well, if it's not money that they want, what is it?
3: I know that society normalises certain things, and yet they are not okay. So I have learned to be that kind of person who will speak if i noticed that something is
4: wrong. And this was the sort of most extraordinary thing to me when I started trying to research it, is there was absolutely nothing to research because everything from 2016 disappeared into a black hole. Because it is, you know, it's this sort of, it's like being in your own reality show, essentially, your social media feed in that it's
5: only directed at you. So how do you change the world? Well, maybe it starts with telling different stories.
0: At the heart of every issue that intersects with the environment, you find contradictions, tensions and divergent perspectives. And these issues are complex and changing. Most of us want a happy life and a healthy planet. But many people have different ideas about the right way to travel towards it. In this new podcast series, I'll be sharing parts of my research from my book, Who Cares Wins?, interviewing some of the leading and conflicting voices in contemporary debates, such as technology, food, gender, politics, and looking at how they intersect with our environment. I see myself a bit like sellotape, ribbon, or string, holding together divergent voices, and sort of asking, who cares who wins? In the last episode of this podcast, I found myself reflecting on the fact that all of our guests, from politicians working in the heart of government to activists rebelling against the government, all champion the essential need for public will in order to see serious action on climate change. Which brings us onto the question of how do we shape public will and the media's role in doing that. Does the media give us an accurate representation of our world? How is the media landscape shifting under the influence of digital? Is social media a powerful tool for bringing the truth to light? Or is it undermining our democracy itself? Would it be better if we simply read less news These are some of the questions I'll be exploring in this week's episode. Arguably, no one represents the power of the media to bring attention to the environment better than broadcaster David Attenborough, who has been bringing the natural world to the eyes and ears of millions through his work in television and radio for nearly 70 years. I spoke with him about the role of television at this time.
1: I mean, the problems that we are facing... The really important things can only be hit by people who wield great power, which in most in democracies is politicians. Mm-hmm. And politicians have to be convinced that this is a serious problem. I mean, it's easy enough for those of us who are concerned with it to sit and grind our axe, mm-hmm. but they've got to worry about their votes, mm-hmm. at least in a the democracy they have. And so you have to convince not only politicians, but also the electorate. Mm-hmm. Do you
0: feel that people are finally waking up, or do you feel disappointed it's taking so long?
1: I have to say that uh, when I started talking about this sort of thing, which was quite a long time ago, I mean, 20 years ago, I made programmes which were saying, look, the planet's in in danger, we've got to look at it. At that time, uh, I dare say people thought, that a... is he right? I mean, is mm-hmm. it, but now I think it's much more serious than that. I mean, I think that it is more recognized that we, the world really is facing a, a crisis. I think it, it's quite true that it, it's a truism uh, and a cliche, but, you know, people say, well, people won't care for something that they don't love or don't know anything about. Mm-hmm. And we have a paradox at the moment, and that is that never before in, in history have so many people been divorced from nature. Mm -hmm. So that means over half the human population of the world is cut off to a greater or lesser degree from the planet. But the paradox is that actually they can be better informed than they ever were. Mm -hmm. Television has brought the world, the natural world, into the living room of everybody. Mm -hmm. And it's it's not just pangolins or birds of paradise. I mean, now with responsible hands, television networks can bring everybody everywhere aware of every corner of this mm-hmm. planet. There is one form of communication which people at all levels, everywhere, can appreciate. Yes. It's quite remarkable because it's a, it's a strange abstraction. It's a two-dimensional version of reality. Mm-hmm. And so we do have a universal language, and those of us who are working in it have a responsibility Thus, mm-hmm.
0: Attenborough's work has played a critical role in expanding the environmental consciousness in recent years, reminding us of the beauty and wonder of the natural world, but also of the threats it faces. But what about less visual media? What about old-fashioned black and white print? I spoke to Alan Rusbridger, former editor-in-chief of The Guardian and now a principal at Oxford University, where he chairs the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. You've been the editor of The Guardian for how many years were you there?
2: I was 20 years editor.
0: 20 years, wow. How do you feel that mainstream media has changed in recent decades? Do you feel like it has changed? Do you see any issues with the way the media is reporting, for example, on issues like climate change?
2: Well, I think it is changing. You could argue that it's been too slow to realise the sort of enormity of what's going on. One of the things that's changed is that, of course, anybody can be a media critic. If anybody gets anything wrong, or anybody doesn't like anything, they can say so immediately and powerfully. And the sort of stranglehold on opinion and news has been taken away from mainstream media. And I think the most responsive bits of mainstream media are realizing that the world has changed, that they have to change with it. So, for instance, on climate change, I think there was a particularly bleak period where mainstream media was missing the story or actively subverting or twisting or distorting the story. But it's harder and harder to do now when you've got millions of eyes watching you and challenging you.
0: Did you see recently Extinction Rebellion's action of disrupting the printing presses in the UK?
2: Yes, I did. Yeah. I mean,
0: hard to miss. Partially, I'm interested in what you made of their action, but also I'm interested in what you think about their arguments behind that action, i.e. that The UK media is too much of a monopoly and is owned by people with business interests that then conflict with the responsibility to tell the truth.
2: Well, I thought in the end their actions were self-defeating because they managed to turn this into a story that, that looked as though they were about suppressing free speech. So it felt to me like a bit of an end goal. But at the heart of it, it's a perfectly reasonable critique to make of a lot of mainstream media that they haven't covered climate change with the seriousness that it deserves, or that they have actively sought to distort or mislead people about it. Now, that leads on to perfectly reasonable questions about, well, who's they? Is this proprietors? Is this editors? Is this fear of upsetting advertisers? I mean, it seems to me those are natural questions to ask, because some of the coverage of climate change has been really bad. So, you know, I understand their anger, whether it was actually sensible to prevent media from appearing, I I, I rather doubt.
0: And do you think that there are any issues in terms of like monopolies of media ownership globally and in the UK?
2: There's a very dangerous situation in media ownership at the moment. So in a sense, in the days when You owned a newspaper to make lots of money. That was a kind of sort of clean motive, if you like. But now you've got a situation where nobody really owns a newspaper to make money. So then you have to ask, well, if it's not money that they want, what is it? You then get into a very sort of complicated area. I think in this country, Rupert Murdoch owns too much media. The same is definitely true in Australia. And when we did the phone hacking scandal on The Guardian exposing the behavior of the Murdoch press, that was extremely alarming because it was clear how many people, not just in the media, but in the police and in politics and regulators were frightened of that man. And he had built up big bigger chunk of power in this country. Where I'm with Extinction Rebellion is to say, these are absolutely legitimate questions to be asking. And on some of these questions, I think I would trust them more than some of the people who own, edit and write about climate change.
0: The mainstream media has been massively disrupted in recent years by the emergence of social media. Even David Attenborough just joined Instagram. I met Ugandan youth activist Vanessa Nakate at Arctic Base Camp in Davos earlier this year, where climate scientists gather to bring their research to the World Economic Forum. After doing a press conference with four other white youth activists, a photograph of the event was published by a major news agency cropping Vanessa out. Vanessa and other youth activists such as Greta Thunberg use their social media platforms to give their own account of the event.
3: I remember going to Davos, it was a completely different experience. This was an opportunity for me to talk about the challenges that people are facing in regards to climate change and there around a uh, around 100 journalists or more in the room. So it was a great opportunity to tell my story. Unfortunately, I ended up being cropped out by a news company when they shared and posted an article, and I wasn't included as one of the activists mm-hmm. at the press conference. That situation changed a lot of things because I remember asking them why I had been cropped out and it caused a massive outrage on, on social media from different parts of the world. From that experience, I feel like a lot has changed in my life. It has made me a really stronger activist and I'm really not afraid to to speak. I know that society normalizes certain things and yet they are not okay. So I have learned to be that kind of person
0: who will speak if I notice that something is wrong. Yeah, I remember when that happened with the photograph. It was the Associated Press, I think. And I read a really beautiful caption, I think you put, or a quote you put, which said, you didn't just erase a person, you erased a continent. And how did you draw attention to what they'd done? Well, it was through my social media platform because I got to see the
3: article on Twitter And I retweeted it with a comment asking why I had been copped. And honestly, I didn't know how viral it would get. So it also showed a certain form of social media being helpful in putting out uh, the challenges that people face. So I used my social media, specifically Twitter, to question them. And this attracted many people, many youth activists, who came in support uh, of what had happened and
0: who spoke against it. I noticed you have two different accounts as well on Twitter of activist organizations, One Million Activist Stories and the Rise Up movement. Could you maybe tell me a little bit about those? Well, about the Rise Up movement, it's an
3: organization that I created to basically help amplify the stories of what is happening in Africa and different stories of various activists and also provide solutions that we know that can work to the climate crisis. And then with the One Million Activist Stories, we've been sharing different stories of different people, regardless of the activism that they're doing, so that we get to amplify their voices and for the world to get to know the work that they're doing, and how they can support them. I believe social media has been a great tool. Of course, it comes with its negative issues because the trolls are always out there to attack. But then the bigger picture is that it has been helpful in pushing my activism, in telling my story, and also in interacting and working together with other activists to
0: demand for action. So social media clearly has the potential for positive disruption and communication. Yet with it has come a series of new and more complex challenges for our media landscape. From smart advertising and data manipulation, fake news, mass surveillance, bots, media monopolies on an unprecedented scale, and filter bubbles that drive polarisation. Social media offers a fun, fair mirror to our collective consciousness, which in turn distorts our ability to have a healthy democracy. I first came across the work of Cambridge Analytica many years ago when I was setting up my own social network. As a tool that allowed you to target people based on their psychology, I found it pretty scary, and I wasn't surprised a few years later when the investigative journalist Carol Cadwallader spoke out about how Cambridge Analytica had been used by platforms like Facebook to distort international elections,
4: so what happened is that Cambridge Analytica employed this psychologist at Cambridge University, this guy called Alexander Cogan, who who um, changed his name. His name at that point he changed it to Dr. Specter, which is this kind of bizarre. Extra detail in the story. Anyway, Alexander Kogan, he developed this app, which was a uh, personality quiz. And Cambridge Analytica paid a couple of hundred thousand people to take this personality quiz. And at the end of the quiz, they had to tick a box. And that gave Kogan access to all, not just their data. So it gave access for them to have all of their data, everything they'd ever sort of seen and shared and liked, and even their private messages on Facebook. And it enabled them to take all of their friends' data as well. So from just a couple of hundred thousand people taking that quiz, they actually harvested 87 million people's Facebook accounts, accounts from around the world. So it's this massive, massive invasion of privacy and then that data was used to create these psychological profiles of people so you could sort of match up people's personality types according to what they had sort of seen and liked and shared on Facebook and then those personality profiles they from that they built these algorithms and they used that to target people in for Trump in the US election on Facebook. A Facebook employee was embedded at Project Alamo inside the Trump campaign, where Cambridge Analytica was also embedded. And and the other thing we've seen as well is this creepy and disturbing alignment between Trump and Zuckerberg in that there's been these sort of secret meetings. There are these private dinners that Trump and Zuckerberg have had at the White House that were only revealed months down the line. But Cambridge Analytica and Alexander Nix and a whole host of other people have always denied that these psychological profiles were used in the Trump campaign. What was really amazing was that Channel 4 News got hold of the entire database that the Republican Party had in 2016. So they've they've got every single American's voter file that sort of this amazing trove of information about every single voter. And that included the Cambridge Analytica psychological profiles of all of these voters. And what they showed was that they showed how Facebook was used by the Trump campaign to target individual ads at black and minority voters to try to persuade them not to vote. It's there. The evidence is there. The psychographic profiles are in there. Whether it worked or not or how it worked is is you can still argue that if you want, but you can't argue that it wasn't used by the Trump campaign because we know that it was.
0: And also other elections internationally, right?
4: We don't even know. I mean the, the, the number of elections that Cambridge Analytica worked in is still there's never been sort of like totally nailed down but it was hundreds
0: yeah i remember in your in your ted talk reflecting on the impact of social networks on the 2016 elections this line that was it's not i I might get it slightly wrong but it was something like it's not about right or left you know brexit or no brexit it's about whether we will be able to have a free and fair election ever again
4: i am just one of many people who have been trying to sound this alarm bell in 2016 That wasn't just a warning, it actually happened. The US election was actually subverted and it was actually Facebook that enabled that. There is just reams of evidence that was provided by the FBI about how that happened, how Russia did that. And the fact is, is that Facebook has, all that happened is it said, sorry, that is all that happened. It was never held to account. It's never had to deal with the consequences of that There's never been a proper shakeup at that company, which was required to address the problem and to ensure that it had the national security systems in place. The FTC in America, the Federal Trade Commission, it announced this absolutely record-breaking fine. It fined Facebook $5 billion because of the Cambridge Analytica data breach, which we'd exposed. And Facebook's share price actually went up that day. It was this extraordinary thing. And that's because, you know, what's $5 billion to a company like Facebook? It's nothing. It's pocket change. So, you know, the share price went up because it was like, forget it. This means nothing. And we are here four years on. We're four weeks away to a new election when already it is happening again. Already, the vote is being undermined. We can, this misinformation and disinformation about voting is flooded the platform. And the most egregious thing is that Facebook does have policies. It has policies about incitement to violence, for example, but it just doesn't enforce them.
0: Is it correct that Donald Trump Jr. had put up a post on the platform calling for kind of armed militias to guard the polling stations? Is that
4: correct? That's right. It's just it's this terrifying thing. It's sort of like this idea of poll watchers who essentially are militias who are being encouraged to show up at the polling stations to intimidate voters. This is all happening inside these closed groups on Facebook, that these militias are being organised. And then what we know is that people are being radicalised, still being radicalised by the, by the Facebook algorithm.
0: When I was researching it for my book, you know, I fact-checked it last year before I went to print. I don't know if it's changed, but Facebook specifically excluded the third-party yeah. kind of fact-checking of political ads. Like, it, it allows third-party fact-checking, if I remember right, of other types of ads. I mean, heaven forbid you post half a nipple and it will be censored, but political ads don't have to be fact-checked. Is that, is that still the case?
4: Yeah, exactly. That's exactly, that's nail on head, Lily. And that was there's this extraordinary clip of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez asking Mark Zuckerberg about that in a congressional hearing. And, you know, he doesn't blink, he just says Facebook has another policy.
0: With Cambridge Analytica, you also, the government really struggled to see the political ads, i.e. to get out of Facebook evidence of what the ads were, that political ads were being shown to people. So there wasn't even awareness of what people were seeing.
4: During the Brexit referendum, the the whole point is, I mean, this was the sort of most extraordinary thing to me when I started trying to research it, is there was absolutely nothing to research because everything from 2016 disappeared into a black hole. Because it is, you know, it's this sort of, it's like being in your own reality show, essentially, your social media feed in that it's only directed at you. It was totally, totally untransparent. And this is the thing which still completely infuriates me is that we still have no idea of what happened on Facebook's platform during the EU referendum. And Mark Zuckerberg refused to come to Britain to be questioned about MPs about that. There has been no access whatsoever for academics to be able to to understand what happened. All of that evidence just disappeared down a black hole. The only thing we saw is that Parliament eventually forced Facebook to hand over the ads of one of the campaigns, just one of the campaigns, so the official vote leave campaign, and even that was totally extraordinary because it, we just saw it was lie after lie after lie after lie that Turkey is joining the EU, that staying in the European Union will endanger polar bears. The social media output they put we were putting out in the last two days before the referendum we now know was illegal. And the money spent in those last 48 hours was this illegal overpayment. They admitted that. And all that happened was some poxy fine. This is massive, massive, massive electoral fraud. It's the biggest electoral fraud in this country for more than a century. And nothing happened. Nobody was held to account. And more than that, most people in this country fundamentally do not understand that. They don't even know about it because. A lot to do with the fact, actually, that the BBC failed to understand it themselves, failed to report it correctly, and the whole thing was swept under the carpet.
0: Do you feel that Twitter have responded in a more responsible way, or what are your thoughts on Twitter's role in this?
4: I think Twitter is responding in a more responsible way, and it also is just less impactful.
0: Do you think that misinformation on this platform is impacting the understanding of climate change?
4: There was this sort of amazing moment for me right at the beginning of my reporting on Cambridge Analytica. So uh, it was like about three days after my first article on Cambridge Analytica came out. And I'd got this pre-arranged story that I was doing in the States. I was going to Denver to go to Al Gore's climate crisis organisation. And that, that, what they do is they train people. They do these sort of climate training camps where they train people from all around the world to go out to their communities and to tell people about climate change. And, and what was amazing, so I had this sort of like, I, I had this brief interview, pre-interview with him at that. I told him about the story I'd just done and how it was all about Robert Mercer, you know, who was funding Cambridge Analytica and this crazy stuff I'd uncovered. And what was so fascinating is that he sort of said well he said well of course i know all about robert mercer he's been funding climate denial for the last 10 years and he said it was there was no way of combating it online and so this was why they decided that the only way that they could have an impact was to talk to people so they were focusing all of their efforts on this idea of you talk to one individual and you convince one individual in person and then they go out and they talk to other individuals. This was the only thing way that you could really combat what was going on online was to take it into the real world like this because the information space had become so toxic. And what we've seen is this linear progression because the climate denial people learned the trick from the smoking lobby. So it's this idea that you don't have to, you don't have to prove the science wrong. You just have to create this uncertainty. And, and that's gone from smoking, to climate, to politics.
0: Many people feel that Facebook's response to the controversy surrounding the 2016 elections has been weak. Whereas Twitter decided to ban all political advertising and remove posts from prominent politicians if they break their codes of conduct, Facebook have continued to defend their position, not banning political advertising, not fact-checking political advertising, and not hiding politicians' posts even if they break their terms of use and, for example, incite violence. The big concession Facebook has made has been to set up an oversight board of 40 very distinguished members, including the former Prime Minister of Denmark, a Nobel Peace Prize laureate and several constitutional law experts. The board, they say, is supposed to act as a kind of Supreme Court with the power to override decisions made by the network's moderators and influence policy. Alan Rusbridger is a member of the new board and spoke to me about it. First and foremost, on a kind of pragmatic level, would you maybe explain your role at the Facebook Oversight Board? What is the actual remit? Does Facebook propose cases or do you guys propose cases?
2: Facebook can propose cases, we can propose cases and users can propose cases. So it's like a kind of Supreme Court. We can give instructions which Facebook have said they will always implement. And then there are broader policy questions, which Facebook can come to us and say, we're having difficulty with these kind of cases or this kind of issue. Could you help us think through that? And they're not bound to accept our judgment on that, though I think it would look odd if if, if they paid no attention to what we were saying. They have said they will make the changes that we suggest. Those sort of straightforward takedown issues, they are obliged to do what we say. But on more sort of broad policy stuff, they will listen to us, but they haven't said that they will uh, automatically implement what we say.
5: Mm.
0: In your mind, what are the biggest challenges you see and the opportunities to solve them in terms of the, the way that Facebook and other companies like them are operating
2: right now? I think it's an incredibly fascinating moment in the development of social media. So you have two billion people using Facebook and some of it is wonderful, some of it is awful, some of it needs to be protected, some of it needs to be taken down or is it suppressed. Now, how you do that at the scale that things are now happening is a really difficult thing to solve. So part of it is being done by machines, part of it's being done by human beings. And I think anybody who has ever given any thought to free speech issues knows how difficult it is to sort out uh, these questions, and who gets to decide? I know some people would like to jump straight to regulation, but I think you have to sort of pause and think, well, what does that mean? Does that mean President Ergadon gets to regulate the Turkish Facebook? Putin regulates Russian Facebook? Is, is that a good idea? And I think there's some skepticism about the idea of self-regulation. So this idea of saying, well, look, a, a halfway house is to have a group of independent people who have had some experience in free speech and human rights issues to take some of the most crucial decisions is quite an imaginative thing to be doing, I think.
0: And is there any appetite to challenge the fundamental business model of the company if you feel like that is causing some of the other issues?
2: It's been interesting seeing my colleagues, you know, some of whom have got judicial backgrounds, some of whom have got human rights backgrounds legal backgrounds, journalistic backgrounds. But none of them, I think, has come into this because they love Facebook. And in fact, a, a few of them have been quite marked critics of Facebook in the past. So in hearing the cases we've thought of so far, the, the last thing on our mind is, is this going to damage Facebook commercially or not? I mean, I, I think we think, well, that's, that's not our role. If what we're proposing damages Facebook commercially, that's Facebook's lookout. We, we'll just say what we think is right.
0: I ask that because it seems to me that the very business model of social media platforms, of being free to users, but therefore almost wholly dependent on advertisers, is one of the root causes of a lot of the other issues that we've had, whether it's the platforms are designed to get as much of user's time as possible or filter bubbles because your the algorithms are designed to make you see content you like or the fact that arguably a lot of the political advertising that's been done through social networks hasn't been fact-checked or moderated in a way that one might hope. So yeah, I just wondered if you agree with any of those more fundamental
2: Issues. Yeah, I mean, that, that is one of the things that people criticise Facebook for, and I, I think that's fair criticism. I mean, Facebook are not the only people. Obviously, there are there's a lot of traditional media that have gone on to a largely free model, which is subsidised by advertising. Whether that's going to work or not, we don't know. I think we have to sort of get going, win trust all round, and then if at some point we need to start saying, look, we need to understand better your algorithm, I think it would be quite difficult for Facebook to say that's none of your business.
0: Carol Cadwallader is not convinced. A few days before we spoke, she launched an alternative shadow board named the Real Facebook Oversight Board. I asked her first and foremost what she thought about Facebook's official board.
4: There's obviously, there's some really amazing people on it, very authoritative in their field, and... I mean, essentially, I just wish them the best of luck because I think any attempt to bring any kind of like scrutiny on Facebook has to be welcomed.
0: Why did you feel compelled to set up the shadow board, the real Facebook oversight board, as you named it?
4: What possible way is there to hold Facebook to account? And, and you know, that, that is the fundamental question, and there isn't one. And when Stop Hate for Profit launched we had a lot of conversations with people involved in that and were thinking about, well, how, how can this, so this was the, the, uh, the boycott of advertisers who were using Facebook launched. And, you know, it's just such a critical thing because without advertising there is no Facebook, you know, this is the money supply. So it was a really, really interesting and important moment this summer, but they made these demands and nothing happened. And w- Nothing happened because there's nothing to, fall. you know, it, it's not enough. That just, even that, you know, these huge, huge companies saying, no, we're not going to advertise on Facebook wasn't enough. So anyway, it was at that point that we started, I started, we started thinking about this idea of a sort of brains trust who would support them in their aims. And at that moment, I remembered about the oversight board, which, you know, had been announced with this great fanfare and then had done absolutely nothing. So had this idea for a real Facebook oversight board. Essentially, it was this idea, it was a sort of punk act of subversion, I suppose, to appropriate their terminology and their structure, but to make it properly independent, to make it properly transparent and to make it not on Facebook's terms and it's, it's very much an emergency response, because a lot of the people who understand this technology best are really, really seriously alarmed at the way that Facebook is already being used to subvert and undermine the US election. It's going to be a really different election from other US elections in that because of mail-in voting, there's not going to be a result on the night in this way, because the result in certain states is going to be delayed and during that period of uncertainty, these really key experts who came to the Real Facebook Oversight Board really worry about what will happen during that period and the way that Facebook could be used to incite violence. And the consequences of that are kind of terrifying, not just for America, but for the world. And I hope that the Real Facebook Oversight Board just gives them additional leverage. It's going to increase the pressure on Facebook. It's going to make their job easier, I hope. And I think it also – I mean, we've already seen it have had an impact. Various things have happened behind the scenes. But the fact is, is that Facebook came out on the day that we were launching the Real Facebook Oversight Board. They did this massive press push to go, oh, actually, we are launching ahead of the election. It's okay. Okay. And then during the press conference we had two days ago, whilst it was going on, they conceded one of the first key demands of the Real Facebook Oversight Board. They've said that they will not allow political ads that seek to delegitimize the election result before it has been announced. So that's a step forward, but it doesn't address everything else which isn't a political ad.
0: Can you tell us about some of the people on the real Facebook Oversight Board and what came out of the first meeting?
4: There's some really incredible people who have um, agreed to be on it. So Shoshana Zuboff, for example, who's the author of Surveillance Capitalism. People like Rashad Robinson, who's the, he's the president of Colour of Change. Derek Johnson, who's another one, he's the NAACP, which is, I think it's the oldest and largest civil rights group in America. Then there's people like Yael Eisenstadt, she's the former head of election integrity for political ads at Facebook. She's really sounding the warning bell about the danger that Facebook poses to the US election. Plus these sort of other incredible voices like Timothy Schneider, who's this historian who's been cataloging the ways how authoritarian governments arise And he sees us in this dangerous historical moment. And then one of the most compelling voices who sort of slightly freaks me out in a way is Larry Tribe is this, he's one of the most important constitutional scholars in America. And he spoke right at the very start of the opening of the board. And he said, this is the most important project I've been involved in, in my 50 year career at the law. And he said, what we are seeing is already, it's a coup d'etat in progress and it is being aided and facilitated by Facebook. I get all this crap for like, she's not a journalist, she's an activist. And it worried me for quite a long time. And then I just thought, sod it. I responded by going, yeah, I'm an activist for the truth, so kill me. But now actually I respond by thinking, yeah, you know, I am a journalist But I I am also a person, I am a citizen, and I am not going to sit here whilst you can see democracy being blown up, essentially.
0: So it's, you know, scary stuff. In a world of misinformation, how do we get more informed? Who do we believe? Is the world really falling apart? Is progress actually being underreported? Is climate change being underreported? Are there any signs of hope for journalism and how we might collectively understand our situation? Alan told me about a few movements that he thinks we can look to to find our way through.
2: So if society cannot work without truthful and accurate and uh, reliable information, evidence-based information, and if the business model for providing that is collapsing, then what do you do? And what I think we're describing is uh, a public service. That's classically something that society needs, but that can't be financed through a, a traditional business model. And I see all kinds of interesting initiatives around the world, including philanthropy, including tax breaks, including people registering themselves as charities or as social enterprises, which say, look, our mission is the provision of truthful and reliable information on things that matter. And we're not there to make a profit, but you know that society needs us. I think we will see a move to that kind of model. And that gives me some hope, because I I think actually that's why most people go into journalism to do that kind of thing.
0: I've been quite interested in Steven Pinker's arguments. I don't know if you followed his work much, where he argues that whilst in many ways we've socially progressed in the last few decades the picture of the world painted by the the media has largely gotten more and more dystopian i would say climate change and environmental coverage is probably an exception to that rule but by and large social things have gotten better and we underreport them because we overreport on all the things going wrong in the world and that has potentially negative consequences on people's mental health and there is a small but promising counter movement towards solutions, journalism, looking at solutions and the good things going on in life. Do you have any thoughts on that? Do you feel like the news is sometimes a bit too negative?
2: I think it's a really interesting, important subject. Journalists are almost genetically programmed to look for things that are exceptional and in a way bad. So when things are going well, that is sort of classically not something that journalists tune into. I remember we'd once had a little column at the bottom of the leader column in the Guardian, in which just called in praise of, because I thought we should be positive about things. And we would always have our leader meetings, and we would discuss the terrible things going on in Africa and the Middle East. And then I'd say, okay, so what are we going to praise today? And it was huge, <laughs> terrible <laughs> silence, and it, it was very hard to get journalists to think that that was just not how they were programmed.
0: The Dutch historian Rutger Bregman is more optimistic about the state of the world and offers a radical proposal. In his new book, Humankind, Ritschke concludes with 10 pieces of advice, including a key one, avoid the news.
5: If you look at the past 10 years, I think there's a lot of reason for hope, because so many ideas that used to be dismissed just five or six years ago have now become quite mainstream, you know. Whether we talk about taxing the rich, or whether we talk about universal basic income, or also about, I think, a bit more hopeful, optimistic view of human nature, the the tide is really turning. Uh, my short summary would be that cynicism is out and hope is in.
0: Why do you think that that negative news and salacious stories have tended to sell better?
5: I'd focus on two things. In the first place, human beings have this negativity bias. So we tend to focus more on the negative than on the positive. Evil is stronger than good. The good can win, though, by with an overwhelming force of, of, of majority. But evil is stronger. You know? It just makes a bigger impression uh, on us. I mean, uh, we've all experienced that in our own lives. If you get I mean, I I experience this, like you get 100 compliments on Twitter, like, oh, great book or nice review, blah, 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 and it's nice. And then there's one nasty piece of criticism, and that's the thing that keeps bugging you and that keeps you up at night. So I guess it's sort of the news really feeds into that, that it sort of triggers this negativity bias over and over again. So if you watch a lot of the news, at the end of the day, you'll have a very cynical and depressed worldview. There's even a term for this in psychology. They call it mean world syndrome. It's a a strange thing, you know, if the news would be invented today and sort of the health authorities would have to decide whether they can sort of allow this product that we call the news on the market and they would look at the side effects, they would probably say, no, 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 this is way too dangerous, you know, it causes anxiety and and feelings of depression and cynicism, et cetera. No, this is not good for our society, you know, we're not going to allow this. But here we are, 90% of the population consumes it. That's one important reason. There's one other thing I was thinking about. It's sort of this negative worldview is also in the interest of those in power. So if you have an hierarchical society, it's in the interest of those at the top for the rest of the population to believe that most people can't be trusted because that legitimizes their power. Now, if most people are pretty decent, then maybe we don't need them anymore.
0: What are the ways that we can try and change the narrative around mm-hmm. what human is so that we might see some impacts in politics?
5: You know, I think that in the end, we are the stories that we tell ourselves. And for centuries, for millennia even, we've been telling each other really cynical stories. It's, I think, at the heart of our capitalist system today. We have to design our companies and the marketplace, etc., around that idea that people are selfish. And so, yeah, we, we sort of become the stories that we tell ourselves. These, these can become self-fulfilling prophecies that's so deeply embedded in our culture. That goes back all the way to the ancient Greeks that you find with the Christian church fathers, you know, the concept of original sin, for example, basically the same idea. You find it with enlightenment philosophers. So how do you change the world? Well, maybe it starts with telling different stories.
0: Well, that was a head fuck of an episode, wasn't it? Sorry. And I didn't even get into how the digital landscape has empowered the rise of modern surveillance states with whistleblowers like Edward Snowden revealing that intelligence agencies have been tapping into the vast amounts of personal data that tech companies trade in. Hmm, I must admit, I definitely feel better when I read less news. But we need some news, right? And unless we also moderate our social media and digital intake, it is hard to control the news we receive. As Carol says, Understanding the influence of the digital information sphere isn't about being left or right or choosing political sides. It's about respecting the truth required for democracy to function. It's about resisting manipulation. As we discussed in the first few episodes of this podcast, through conscious consumerism, we have the ability every day to express our political voice through our buying choices. With the media, this relationship is more complex because most of these platforms are free. But conscious consumption is just as important. We're not paying for these services with our money. We are paying with our time, our attention, our eyeballs, our data, our privacy. Campaigns like Stop Hate for Profit show the role that businesses and advertisers can play in pushing back against these trends. Employees reacting inside companies have a lot of leverage power. Brave activists, whistleblowers, lawyers and journalists are trying to improve standards, and it may be that we see political actions in years to come to regulate tech giants. Personally, I decided a few years ago to go on a social media diet. Not abstaining completely, but being more mindful about how much I use these platforms and their impact on my thinking. Traditional media, social media, the Facebook Oversight Board, the real Facebook Oversight Board, reading the news, not reading the news, who wins? Or maybe there is no winner, and that's the point. There's something to learn from all sides. Indeed, it's kind of meta, right? Because I'm arguing that the news needs to be representative of more voices and not get lost in filter bubbles. And indeed, that's what this podcast is trying to do. You can hear more from David Attenborough, Carol Cadwallader. Brookha Rugman and many others in my book Who Cares Wins which is out now in hardback ebook and audiobook Join me next time on this podcast where I'm going to be exploring the concept of growth